Hey, good morning. Hope you're doing well today. Uh, it's great to have you here. We're honored that you are here on Mother's Day uh, with us. Some of you, some of you are guests. Uh, some of you are uh, are uh, members of New City. Jacob, can I get you to turn on the lights? Thank you so much. I'm sorry. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, yeah, I'm a, yeah, there's those faces. That's good. It's good. It's good to be here with you this morning. If you're new with us, uh, we are, we are, we have been going through a series of messages called Kingdom Culture. And uh, if you've got a Bible, we've been going, basically starting in Matthew 5, we're going to look through Matthew 7 over the course of this series. And we're, we're, we're exploring this sermon that Jesus preached called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's basically the longest sermon that Jesus ever preached to his disciples that was uninterrupted. And um, the interesting thing about the Sermon on the Mount is that it's like one of the first things that Jesus does in his public ministry. And he's kind of setting the tone for what the kingdom of God is actually like. Um, because there's a lot of people that have a lot of ideas about what the kingdom of God's like. And Jesus wanted to set the tone for what the culture of his kingdom was like. And so he starts out by addressing, uh, uh, not at the, like the big picture, but he starts out addressing the individual. What does it look like when the grace of God comes upon a person's life? And it's kind of this upside-down kind of mentality because here's what he says. He says the first thing that happens is that when, when, the, when, when repentance comes into someone's heart and they turn from this world to Jesus, that they experience this poverty of spirit. They're poor in spirit. And then that, that and so it's not like the, Jesus didn't come in and be like, hey, man, this is going to be awesome. You guys are all great. He's like, the first thing you're going to experience in my kingdom is just you're going to be, you're going to be really broken. Because you're going to see how far you are away from our Father. And that's going to lead you to mourn over your sin, which is going to lead you to approach yourself and your relationship to others with a sense of meekness or a, a quiet strength, not a, pride, not a prideful kind of a strength. But it's all because of this idea that you are now uh, hungering and thirsting after Jesus' righteousness. You're no longer trying to be righteous on your own without Jesus, but you're hungering and thirsting after him. And because of that, there's this repentance of the walk that, that, that Christians experience where the way that we relate to other people is changed. It's, it's different. It's a, so instead of a, instead of a uh, um, kind of a... Uh, um, uh, 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 a legalistic or kind of a you get what you deserve kind of an approach to life, you're merciful toward other people because you know what it's like to be poor in spirit. And, and it's in this place of mourning, it leads to this place of a purity of heart where you seek to live in the light with God and in the light with others that leads you to this place where you desire to make peace with your life. Isn't that an interesting phrase? That we have power to become peacemakers in this broken world. And so today we're kind of picking up with the first of those three on the right, this idea of a merciful life. So to kind of set this up, because here's the deal, Jesus wants to holistically transform us. Amen? That's what he wants to do. He doesn't want to just transform one part of your life at the detriment of the other. He didn't want you to experience a sense of atrophy where one part of your, your spiritual life is stronger than the others, but he wants to holistically transform us in, into his image over time. So a question as we kind of set this up, has anyone ever had a really, really, really embarrassing moment in front of other people before? Anybody? The rest of you are liars. My first interaction with the high school weight room was one of those occasions. I was in eighth grade, got to play up on the high school baseball team. It wasn't that that was that good, it was just the team was that bad. 
And we were allowed to work out with the team in the weight room. Only problem is, I'd never been in a weight room before. I was in eighth, eighth grade, looking at all these weights, terrified, didn't know what to do with them. And there's these guys with beards that are on our team, because they're 18. And they clearly know what to do with them. And so my friend Drew and I were in eighth grade, and uh, we were like, okay, well, you know, let's just, let's just, we do know this one exercise, let's just keep doing this, just see what happens. And uh, that exercise was preacher curls. And it's when you sit on this bench and you just do curls like this. So what we would do for, for a whole week, we did nothing but curls in the weight room. <laughs> and so we'd go in there and we'd get a few reps in, put a few more weights on, get tired, break a little sweat, walk around, get water, look at other guys. Oh, great job, guys. And then we'd go back and hit some more curls. Well, finally, about the fifth day of doing this, my, uh, uh, one of my coaches, he just had enough. He goes, <laughs> it was Coach Higgins, he goes, R.J., what in the world are you guys doing? All I've seen you and Drew do this week is curls. You know that curls are for girls, right? Those are for the beach. Everything else in this gym is for baseball. Now put those things down and get to work. <laughs> and so for, from that day on, that year, I was RJ who only likes to do curls to the older guys. And they just, they made fun of me all the time. They'd walk by and be like, it was just, anyway. That's basically what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes. Stop just doing beach curls, you know. That's what he's saying. He's saying if you want to be transformed, the gospel has to permeate not only your heart, uh, not only your mind, but also your hands in very specific ways in how you relate to other people. That's where this idea of merciful living comes from. Mercy that's on display with others because it's alive inside of us. So if you're a note taker, here's our big idea for today. So our, our text is, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And here's our big idea surrounding that. Merciful living means that we are drawn toward, not repelled by, broken sinners that are in distress over their sin. So here's the thing that Jesus is teaching in this beatitude. If you want to be drawn toward a life of mercy, you first have to be drawn by the mercy of God. That, that's the only way that we live in such a way with other people where we are merciful and we, we, we reflect Jesus to the world. It's this idea that this, that this posture of, of spiritual brokenness, and what that means is, this poverty of spirit, means that we finally realize that we can do nothing to earn God's love on our own. That, we, that, there's, that there's not a, 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 enough commandments that we could obey because ultimately we are broken people who are poor in spirit. And that is the best news that Jesus could ever, that's the, if, if you've never heard that or considered that before, that is the best news I can give you today. That you don't have to keep running. That you can rest and God will find you. And it feels like cheating because that's what grace is. Grace finds us when we are broken and it's applied to our heart. And we live in very specific and intentional ways as followers of Jesus as we live out this life of God's grace. And so if you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Luke chapter 10 this morning because Jesus teaches a lot about mercy. And there is one specific instance that Jesus talks about mercy from Luke chapter 10. And it's, it's, it's uh, commonly known as uh, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I think that's a bad title because it's really not about a good guy. It's about a good God. Amen? And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 10. If you've got a Bible, open that up, pull it up on your phone, whatever you want to do there. But uh, here's, here's our first point, really two points, drawn by mercy, drawn to mercy. Drawn by mercy means this, that we are being humbled by the love that God requires 
And it's the only way to grasp the love that God offers. That, the, that, the, that, um, that God's love first humbles us, and then we live out of that humility that he gives to us. Jesus does this thing in his teaching that holds us accountable. All right, so it's, it's interesting. You, you look at how Jesus teaches, and there's a lot of, a lot of what Jesus teaches uh, is strong, right? I mean, it's not weak teaching. And the reason that he does this is that he gives us what he requires so that he can require what he gives. And so there's this tension that we have when we follow Jesus, is that he gives us, he gives us all of this, this fitness to live in the kingdom, but then he requires us to live out that way. And it's not on our own strength, but it's his strength. The demands of the gospel are strong. And there, I think, and I think in, our, in kind of the age that even the church is in now, coming out of a pandemic, we're seeing people that, that didn't really consider the demands of the gospel kind of just fading away right now. And maybe that's kind of been you and you're kind of having a reawakening right now. But Christians, they live a certain way because Jesus lives inside of them. It's not about that person. It's about Jesus. And it's about the world that he loves and his love being revealed to the world around us through the people that he calls to himself. That's how God changes the world is through his church. And so for us to understand this idea of mercy, uh, let me break down kind of the difference in what grace is and what mercy is, because they have a lot of overlap and they have some differences too. I think people often say that grace is getting what you don't deserve, while mercy is not getting what you do deserve, right? Have you heard that before? Maybe you've heard that before. I think that's an okay, I think that's an okay definition of the difference in grace, like unmerited favor and then mercy, like God not giving you what you deserve. He's not pouring his, his wrath out on you. He's poured out on Jesus instead. But I think it also looks a little more clear and specific than that too. So the, the word grace in, 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 in the New Testament uh, is almost always dealing with, this, with these ideas of guilt and shame surrounding sin's impact on our lives. So what sin does in our lives when we, when, we, uh, when we walk into the disobedience of sin, and I don't have to tell you what sin is, it's any, it's any, it's any time we step across what God requires, right? It's any time we, we disobey and we go in a different direction. And that produces certain effects in your heart. It produces a sense of, of guilt. It, it, uh, it produces a sense of shame in your life. And God's grace covers those for us because of what Jesus has done for us when we did not deserve it at all. It's an unmerited gift. It's, a fa it's the favor of God on our lives. He bestows upon his grace. He's the God of all grace. Whereas mercy, uh, more specifically in the New Testament, is dealing with the results of sin in our lives. It's dealing with the consequences of sin. Because what the devil does is he, he, he convinces us that sin will not have any consequences, right? If we really believe that sin wouldn't have consequences, we would not sin. But we get into this place where we're convinced that there will be no consequences, and so we, we walk into the sin. Mercy is dealing with those consequences of sin that you, that you experience and that you feel in your life. And those, those consequences vary. It's any form of brokenness, any place where you look at your life or the lives of others and you don't see flourishing, that's sin's impact on the world. That's what the mercy of God is here to cover. And so Jesus tells this story about, about mercy um, because there was this guy that encountered him that needed to grow in his comprehension of mercy. And I could, I could just as easily be that guy as you could. And so we need to hear from Jesus today if we're ever going to live merciful lives. So Matt, or Luke chapter 10, verse 25 says this, 
And behold, a lawyer stood up and he put Jesus to the test. And he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's a fair question. What needs to happen for me to be in this for the long haul, right? And Jesus says to him, hey, you're a lawyer. What's written in the law? How do you, how do you interpret it? How do you read it? And he answers with a great Sunday school answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the great commandment, right? And, and, um, and Jesus answers him and he says, you have answered correctly. Hey, it's as simple as this guy. Just do this and you'll live, right? And so th- then the lawyer goes on to say, we're going to look at it in just a second. He goes, well, then who then is my neighbor? And then Jesus proceeds to tell a story. So this dialogue is with a Jewish lawyer desiring to know what he can do to inherit eternal life as he's asking a Jewish rabbi how he might do that. And so um, what we see is it really reveals a distorted view that, that probably all of us have about mercy. Um, because I think we're tempted, when, when, we t- when, we, when we approach people who are distressed over the impact of sin in the world, or people approach us, I think there's a temptation to kind of put metrics on it, to kind of make it manageable, right? Like, who is this relationship? What's going on? How can I manage this thing and therefore it not intrude too deeply into my life or cost me too much? I think that's typically how we, as Westerners, approach people that are in need, especially economic need. Um, But the thing that Jesus is doing here is he's revealing the fact that before mercy is an invitation to doing, it is an invitation to being. The first thing that Jesus wants this man to know is that we are human beings, not human doers. And that's the best news that I can tell you today because the gospel is such good news that God's not asking you to do anything that he's not already done for you. He just wants it on display through our lives. So this lawyer starts racking his brain, right? Because he realizes the same thing that you and I realize, that like, okay, and that's really how Jesus would answer any of us. If If we went to him and said, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He would say the same thing to us. If you can obey the whole law perfectly and never sin, you can inherit eternal life on your own. The problem is, is that we are born with original sin, right? We are, we are born with iniquity in our hearts as we come out of the womb. And the book of James says that separates us from God forever. If there's one transgression in your life, you'll never be able to cover the ground. You'll never be able to cross the chasm with any works that you could do. And so when, when we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, what can I do to inherit eternal life? It's a flawed question because the answer is always and only, we can never do anything to inherit eternal life. Now, that, that kind of is an assault against our flesh. It's an assault against our humanity. And it makes us feel, it, it feels so unfair, doesn't it? And when we feel that way, we are misunderstanding who God is and what he's done for us. And so Jesus starts fleshing this out with this lawyer. And Jesus' goal was not to give this man a list, but to reveal to him a great degree of self-awareness And coupled with that, the depth of just how amazing the gospel really is. This man, like me and you, is spiritually bankrupt. Not only is he unable to pay his bill of the righteous demands of of humanity, but he is so in debt to God that not even the debt collector of legalism or moralism or whateverism you want to put in there can even come close to closing the gap. Friends, the gap between 
uh, who you, who, where God is and where we are on our own is so wide that we will never, ever, ever be able to cross it on our own. And Jesus wants this man to know this because it's then and only then will we begin, as we understand the mercy of God, will we be able to extend the mercy of God to this world. So as we kind of get into this story, I want to just ask you a few questions. How has God's love humbled you recently? What, what has the mercy of God done in your heart recently? Because to Jesus, merciful living is connected to receiving the mercy of God in our hearts, to reveling in the mercy of God, to sitting in the mercy of God, because we're human beings. Before the gospel is an invitation to doing, it's an invitation to being. The Lord isn't looking for your spiritual activity in this world. He's looking for your heart. And when he has your heart, you will reflect his heart with your hands. That's what it's about. That's what it's about for us. Living mercifully is serving others out of your own poverty of spirit. That's the only way to avoid the metrics of mercy that we, we so typically fall into. And so when this poverty of spirit hits your heart and your soul in such a deep way, it makes us desperate for Jesus. So how does it change us? Well, we're not, we're, when we're drawn by mercy, we're drawn to mercy. We want to pursue people who, we know, who know that there's no chance they could ever get to God on their own. We're drawn to those people. Not the people that are all buttoned up and together and their lives are going great and they're living a lie. But we're drawn to the people who know they need God, not repelled by them. So mercy becomes a posture for us when our awareness of our own brokenness connects to the brokenness of other image bearers in our community. And that results in a sacrificial gift of time, care, and resources that we extend to others because of what God has done for us. Listen to how this plays out in Luke chapter 10, 29. But he, desiring to just himself, justify himself, this is, the, this is the lawyer that's approaching Jesus, he says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replies with this parable, this short story, to illustrate to him this idea of neighbor, this idea of mercy. And he says, there was a man that was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and he saw him, and he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side as well. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to, where G, came to where this man was, and he saw him, and he had compassion on him. And he went up, and he bound up his wounds, and he poured oil and wine on them. Then he set him on his own animal, thus walking, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denaries, form of currency, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I get back. And then the, Jesus hops out of the story and looks at the lawyer and he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And the lawyer looked at him and said, the one, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. 
So Jesus is expounding on this story, and he's notice he's not focusing on this man's like relationship with the Lord. He's not focused on the vertical thing. He's saying, I can see how the vertical thing's working out by the horizontal thing, right? Did you know that's true about our lives too? Like, what does Jesus say? You'll know them by their fruits, right? Like, if if we say we believe one thing and we do another thing, we kind of discredit the thing that we say we believe. Jesus is saying they're all connected together. Well, he does this to, to break up this guy's prideful, disconnected heart. Now, this Jewish man, let me just paint the story for you. This Jewish man goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this road, I've been on this road before. It's, it's, so Jerusalem is at 3,000 feet of elevation. It's kind of up on a mountain in the desert. And uh, Jericho is about 15 miles away down by uh, uh, the Dead Sea. And uh, so the, the city of Jericho is 1,000 uh, feet below sea level. It is the lowest city on, uh, on the face of the planet. So there's a 4,000-foot um, decline, descent, uh, into, into that. And, and as you can imagine, they have to go through mountains on this road to get there. It's about 15 miles away. And so because there are all these mountains, these travelers who would often travel by foot or maybe on donkey or something like that, they were left vulnerable uh, to, to all of these. They were, they're very exposed and people could hide out. And so th- the, road, the road wouldn't typically be traveled alone. And this guy is left out uh, in, 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 in this vulnerability and he's, he's captured He's beaten, he's mugged, and he's robbed, and they just leave the man in the ditch, okay? That's the story. And Jesus is trying to help this guy understand who his neighbor is. And so what he does then is he tells this, he tells this, this story of two guys who are just like the guy in the ditch, right? There's a, they're, and they're religious leaders, a Levite and a priest. And so they're, they both, on separate occasions, are walking down the road, and they, it's, the Scripture says they see the man, and what they do is they actually go to the other side of the road and keep walking. It's like they never saw him. And it's funny because it would almost be like this. It would be like you being stranded on a desert island and like there's no hope and like you set up the little campfire for the SOS and a plane happens to see it. And that plane doesn't just fly over you, that plane lands. That plane opens the door, the pilot gets out, he sees you, he gets close to you and he turns around, gets back on the plane and leaves without inviting you on. That's what it was like. These were his boys, these were the guys who if anybody was going to take care of a Jewish man on this road, would have been them. And then comes along this man who is uh, not only ethnically different, socioeconomically likely different, religiously different, probably has a different faith system more than likely. There are very few Samaritan believers in the Bible. And this guy comes, and it's, the Scripture says he sees the man. He sees him, and the seeing leads to having compassion on the man. And the compassion leads to caring and sacrificing for this man. The Jewish man, at this point, doesn't have any time for his racial or cultural or religious bias, does he? This is his only option. He's in need of mercy, not judgment. And this is the only man that's there to help him. And the Samaritan engages with him, gets his hands bloody, bandages this man up, puts this man on his donkey and walks him to an inn. I don't know how far it is away. Then he gets him to the inn. He puts him in the inn. He talks to the innkeeper and says, hey, look, I've got a line of credit here. Whatever whatever he needs, you give to him. These guys have nothing in common. Nothing. Guys, that is how good the gospel is. 
that he can bring people who have nothing in common and have them serve one another. How beautiful would it be if that's what New City Church became? Amen? Amazing truths of how the gospel changes people. And then Jesus pops out of the story that he's just told. And he talks to this lawyer that's Jewish who um, probably wanted to identify with the Samaritan on the road, but Jesus wanted him to see that he was actually the guy in the ditch, right? And he says this, which guy proved to be a neighbor? See, Jesus isn't afraid to talk about the demands of the gospel. He knows that, that gospel living, that believing in Jesus proves things in our lives, right? It always does. He says, which one proves to be a neighbor? The lawyer says, the one who showed that he could get eternal life on his own. Remember, that was his original question. No, he says, the one who did what? Showed mercy. The one who lived mercifully proved to be a neighbor. And then Jesus says, friend, go and do likewise. I want this gospel truth that you are choosing to believe, you're seeking to show up in how you live with others. So what I want to do with the last part of this sermon is I want to focus on that imperative right there. How do we go and do mercy? How do we become the kind of people that are so touched by the mercy of God that it shows up frequently and tangibly in our lives? I think there are four priorities of a mercy-driven life that Jesus requires from us. Jesus was teaching this lawyer that unless he sees himself as a man in the ditch in need of mercy, he will never inherit eternal life. But once he sees himself as the man in the ditch, his life will be about serving those who are also in the ditch. So as I share these four priorities, what you need to know is that this message is grounded in that reality. Jesus is the one that came for us in the ditch and found himself in the ditch. Jesus became robbed, didn't he? Remember when he stole his clothes? He became beaten. He became bloody. He became left for dead so that you and I could have eternal security forever and give our lives away to those who are in distress over the effects of sin in this world. We already have it all, friends, in Christ. So because of that, we approach, we approach others in this world who are in distress over sin with four priorities in mind. The first one is this. I'll just share them all with you and then I'll go back. Proximity, dignity, compassion, and sacrifice. Proximity. So I, before we assume anything, we need to ask the question, who are the people that are right in front of me now? I think we've got these ideas of like this future people that we'll serve when it shows up on our calendar and all the circumstances align at this season in my life when I'm not working as much, I can give some more time away and all this and that. But Jesus, this, this guy didn't plan for any of that. He was just on the road. And God called him to show mercy. So as we identify with the effects of sin in our own lives and how these effects have left us to some degree in a place of distress, we serve others from that place. Jesus is not asking you to get your act together to serve other people. No, not at all, because you'll never have your act together, right? That's the whole point of the gospel. What is it for you right now, friend, that is unique about this place in time and in history in your life right now that the Lord wants you to take notice of? Who are the people, the situations, 
um, the opportunities that are in front of you right now. Not what you're trying to plan, not what you're trying to hotwire up, but what is actually true of your story right now. And where are people in distress over their sin? My question is this, do you see them? And, and, and we need to step back because I think it's often easy to overlook these kinds of people. I, I had a guy tell me after the first service, he said, you know, I was in my car one day, I was leaving out of this parking lot, there was this homeless guy that was sitting uh, on the curb right there, and I, I tried to pull out, and the Lord spoke to me, so I went back, and I started talking with him, I was taking him to get some lunch, and he walked into this restaurant uh, that this guy had been in often, because he, he frequented the area, and, um, and the, the person that was at the restaurant, one of the servers, said, I see you, and the homeless guy looked at me, and he says, you don't see me. And, and my friend that told me that story says that's stuck with me for, for like the last 20 years. I don't think I can ever forget that. Like what, is it, what does it mean to really see people? What does it mean to really be touched by a person's story at a heart and a soul level? That's the kind of mercy that God's after, not just your resources. He's after the spirit of mercy in his people. The second thing that we kind of see here is this idea of dignity. So not only do I see the people that are right in front of me, but how do I see the people that are right in front of me? Dignity is this idea that we, each and every person, each and every human, regardless of how sin has affected their life, regardless of how they've per, uh, perpetrated sin you know, in the world, or they, they've sinned against other people, regardless of any of that, every person on the face of the planet has worth because they're made in the image of God. Every single person. And so if there's ever a time in my life where I feel like, man, that person's kind of worthless. They're not worth my time. Something is deeply broken inside of me, you know? It's not that person. It's me. It's, I'm the one that's broken. As the creator, God gives definition and identity to us as image, as image bearers that never changes no matter how bad sin distorts it. One image bearer cannot define another image bearer. In fact, the darkest times in the history of the world have been times when people have tried to take the dignity of others through things like oppression and slavery. Those things are trying to steal dignity away from people. Those are the worst things that we've ever seen in history. But what we see is that proximity leads us to the opportunity to draw out the dignity of every person that we encounter. There's not one human being in the world that you and I cannot relate to 99.9% of the time because we are just that alike. So why are we focusing on the, you know, the tenth of a percent? Why does it divide us and keep us from showing mercy so often? It's because we have a flawed view of what it means to be made in the image of God. So the priest and the Levite, they don't see any dignity in this man because of his condition and despite their similarities, their faith actually repelled them. And Jesus says this isn't how true faith works. Their, their, their religion was actually a, likely a barrier to mercy. What are the barriers to mercy that you have in your life right now? What is it? What is it that keeps you from engaging people who are in distress over their sin? Is it the fact that you feel like you've got to have it all figured out yourself before you can serve others? Is it the fact that you're a little bit afraid of how far it will go and how much it will require of you? Is it because you just don't care about other people? What is it for you that is a barrier for you to extend mercy to people who are in distress over sin? Because that's a really big gospel issue, Jesus says. 
Because he says this, blessed are the merciful, for they shall do what? Receive mercy. I'm pretty sure we want to receive mercy. So he says it starts by how it shows up in our interactions with one another. The third thing, maybe my favorite, is compassion here. And we ask this question, is my heart moved by the grace of God to care physically and spiritually for my neighbor? You know what compassion is? Compassion is when you can look at someone or some situation and either say, I've been in that ditch before, or I wouldn't put it past me to find myself there too. That's when you're at the heartbeat of compassion, when you can see yourself in another's shoes because something happens in your heart that is drawn to that person, drawn to that situation, instead of being repelled by it. And that is the heart of God. Listen to Luke 10, 33, how this story plays out again. He says this, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he wasn't planning this, he was on a journey. He came to where this man was, this Jewish man, this man that the .10% was pretty wide. There's a lot of differences there. And he saw him. And not only did he see him, his seeing had action. He had compassion on him. And I think this is where we get freaked out. We get freaked out to share and show compassion in a sacrificial way to other people. And friends, it takes more than money for people to thrive. If there's anybody that ought to be able to tell the world that, it's America, right? Everyone on the face of the planet has something to offer you, regardless of the situation that they're in. When we begin to approach people as if they actually are an asset to community, regardless of how much money they have, if they have a house or not, uh, if their life is put together uh, or not, when we approach people like that, it draws out dignity in them. Instead of approaching them from a kind of a deficit kind of a way. Because relationships are what build a community, not money. And therefore, people are heard instead of talked at when that happens. Have you ever talked at someone before? You ever been talked at? I've been talked at before. It's no fun. It makes you feel less than human, doesn't it? And it focuses, this type of living focuses on development more than just relief. We know that everyone's on a journey. Friends, sometimes the Spirit of God is going to come on you and invite you to take someone to lunch. Other times it's just going to be to look them in the eye and smile at them. Other times it's going to be really, really sacrificial for you. Other times it's going to be a kind word. We cannot put metrics on a spirit-driven, merciful life. It'll keep us away. It'll keep us repelled by people that are devastated by sin our whole lives. And we'll get to the end of our lives realizing that we never extended mercy to other people. And that is to miss out on the kingdom of God in our midst. It's the last thing is, is this, is that Jesus invites us to sacrifice. And so we ask the question, does showing mercy cost me anything? It's not only about this, but it's definitely not less than this. When is the last time that showing mercy cost me something? It cost me money. It cost me time. It cost me energy. When was the last time that your heart was so compelled and drawn by Jesus that you were willing to sacrifice to help another image bearer understand the God of mercy? When is the last time that that happened? What does that look like? In your life. If you want to live mercifully, church, we have to put ourselves in the ditch, not on the road. That's where Jesus found us all. That's where Jesus went for us so that we can draw out the dignity 
and compassion and mercy and love the world unlike anyone's ever been able to because of Jesus and what he's done for us. And that's my heart for us, church. Let's pray together. Father, I, um, I just thank you that, uh, that you are a God that abounds in mercy. You're rich in mercy. And you abound in steadfast love, Lord. Father, help us to just pause long enough today to, to not only understand that you're a God of mercy, but for your mercy to hit our hearts today. Not one day, Lord, have you given us what we deserve. Not even on our worst day have we gotten what we deserve. And for that, we could never, we could never worship you enough, Lord. And Father, we are just so tempted to blow past that and get busy with our lives and never extend the mercy of God to another person. Lord, I pray that you would help this church to see people, to really see people deeply because we know we are so seen by our Father in heaven. And I pray that would change everything about how we live. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.